Electric bicycles are my jam. I'm turning into a nut for a good e-bike. It's easy to get around, we save gas not driving our car for short trips to the store, and I'm getting a little extra exercise. The folks at Velotrick are sponsoring a series of videos on my channel to show off some affordable e-bikes and help people get up to speed. It's easier than you think, and prices have never been more competitive. You can catch those videos on my YouTube channel, but if you're interested in shopping an e-bike, head over to velotrick.bike slash some gadget guy and look at their road bikes and fat tires. Again, V-E-L-O-T-R-I-C dot B-I-K-E slash some gadget guy. Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy. If any of those bikes look good to you, you can save an additional $60 off an already low price by using the coupon code SOMEGADGET60, SOMEGADGET60 at checkout. Once again, Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy and coupon code SOMEGADGET60. And I thank Velatric for being a sponsor on this show. I believe this means we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions, welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, aka Some Gadget Guy, the SGG of this terrible, terrible name for a podcast. But the QA is the important part. We are looking to make this an interactive conversation, the question and answer as we go through the headlines for over the last week, maybe some news broke over the weekend. It's why I like to hold my show on a Monday, gives us that chance to kind of sort out our feels and then also keep up with these stories, not just read a couple headlines that one time and then think we know what's going on in the world already. Seeing an incredible list of names jumping into the chat. I see uh, Barry Johnson. We are live. Live. We've seen Al Sabakli, uh, J-Man150 back. Let's go. Happy Monday. Hope we're all staying hydrated. So here in Southern California, we are soaked. (laughs) We are overly hydrated. I mean, the city, not us individually. I'm going to take a quick sip of water here now that I've said. Um, apologies if this stream cuts out suddenly. Uh, we, we did have another little mini uh, power outage uh, just with all the rain and the wind and you know the emergency flash flood warnings we're getting. It's still coming down pretty hard. I actually have a product that you know claims some water resistance. So as soon as I'm done with this podcast, that product will be going out to my back patio, which is yet again flooded. So it uh, should be pretty interesting. Sorry. Uh, Simon says Hypno. Kapakash. We've got uh, Mountain Dew Lou. We got Scoop. We got, uh, did I say Simon says Hypno? I think I did. We got a bunch of fun folks ready to chat about the nerdy stuff. Barry Johnson, it rained for 48 hours straight here, so I understand. We have gotten, I think, more rain in the last... I think we've gotten more rain in the last 24 hours than I think we did in all of, like, 2022. But that's, like, happened several times over. So, again, it's it's been pretty rough just with the uh, the amount of water that L.A. can handle. Simon says, Hypno, I just took my mom to the Game of Thrones studio tour and lunch for her birthday. That is a great son. I hope you two had a lovely time. Uh, this weekend was pretty chill for us. Uh, the, the, the big focus was um, Lex just started softball. And uh, this is our very, very first uh, year playing. 
her very first game of her very first year playing. And the, the softball league did like a fun little, um, uh, sort of like a meet and greet and little parade where all the teams got to kind of walk out on the high school track uh, uh, near us and like show off banners and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool. So uh, before we move on, I got to take a quick pause here. Uh, Deland bit subscribed with prime subscribed for five months. Two Turbo subscribed with Prime, subscribed for 14 months. So uh, both of you, thank you so much for supporting uh, on on Twitch and uh, keeping the stream up and running. And this fanfare of glory, uh, courtesy of one Mr. Barry Johnson who hooked me up with the stream deck, is for you. Bum, bum. Rico Man also just subscribed to Tier One. Subscribe for 29 months. We're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna do one more. You know, it's kind of a back to back. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, all, all three of you. Um, that is really awesome to uh, to, to see. And, and again, it's uh, the main hosting for this is on Twitch. I know we've got a lot of folks here chatting on the YouTubes, but it's uh, it, it's messy out there. I, I am thinking at some point, uh, and, and uh, if anyone has kind of played around with some of these other options, at some point we might try a stream just host it over on the blog, over on somegadgetguy.com. And maybe we start walking away from doing video, but we make it more of like a town hall style conversation. Where I mean, like, I in my mind, I would love to take this show classic old school call-in radio and have that ability, and like someone's got like a problem and they can literally call into the show and we can kind of chat about some of those things that might help us out. And then if someone wants to guest, you know, like it's easier to kind of plug in a co-host or a, or a, a, a one week guest. So it, I'm, I'm really looking at some different solutions and some hosting options and some recording solutions. And if someone has some experience in doing stuff like that, definitely hit me up either here um, on, on the stream or offline, offline on other conversations on social media that we can have. Um, but it would be nice to have kind of a standalone solution that just walks us away from the more toxic aspects of like the mega trillion dollar corporations algorithmically standing on our necks. Like I'm, I'm not inclined to bring the show back to YouTube just because YouTube treats us so poorly. So <laughs> George, George Whittem. Okay. George is my brother from another mother. Um, George was the, is, is still, I'm talking of George in the past tense when I'm the one who walked away from commercial voiceover. George was my go-to resource for helping voice actors really build infrastructure. So I used to run a little consulting business where I would help um, teach voice actors like home recording. And sometimes I would help them do mic shootouts, but if they really needed the resources to build a room within a room or, or like a, a much more robust home recording solution. Like they were really doing gigs at home. George was my man uh, that I would recommend people reach out to, uh, to, to get that job done. So he, he used to host um, a voiceover uh, show uh, talking about, you know, acting and performance and auditioning and tech and stuff like that. And it was just, I love the live interaction of radio style. Because I know there are some things like, um, what is it? It's like speak pipe, I think. You can set up like a, a, a bucket that people can leave you voicemails. And you can play those voicemails and those are pretty cool. 
Um, but I loved being like able to interact with the person. You, you get someone who calls in on something like a smartphone and they're like, oh, but I need the phone with the best camera. And you're like, I can't, I can't help you. Like you've already like shown me, you don't know even the question that you're asking me. <laughs> George, I will, I will take you up on that. Let's talk offline. Heck yeah, man. I would I would be very interested uh, in hearing about what solution you guys used. Um, oh, Cashfly, pup on tech. I know Twit, who are the OG at this, use Cashfly. If that helps, I can look up Cashfly too. That might be kind of interesting. I'm I'm just again I'm trying to live my best life and put my money where my mouth is. And when I'm complaining about Google and YouTube, and when I'm complaining about Amazon and Twitch, I feel like Maybe I need to be the one who starts looking up some of these solutions. Um, Delambit, is this being streamed on LinkedIn? This is being streamed on LinkedIn. So uh, I have taken the stream off of Zitter. Um, there is no more Elon Musk live stream, but you can also catch the show. So, so obviously Twitch is the one where I'm really focused most on that chat. But um, the show is also available on the YouTube channel that I run with TK, uh, the Best of Our Week YouTube channel, and then also on LinkedIn. And then just because it's silly, like if you find my personal account on Facebook, it goes there too. I have not logged into that Facebook since before the pandemic for anything other than dealing with... uh, impersonation accounts where people will tell me like, Hey, there's someone who's using your profile picture to hawk like Bitcoin. And I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks. And then I send a message to Facebook and they're like, we can't help you at all. And we have determined that nothing they're doing violates our terms of service. And then like a couple days later, they get rid of the account. (laughs) But that's it. That's literally the only interaction I have with Facebook. So if you find my personal Facebook page, you will also see this show streaming. But LinkedIn is is probably a more um, appropriate uh, place to catch some of this stuff. Let me get this out of the way here. <laughs> Simon says Hypno. For Zitter, the X is pronounced S-H like Xiaomi. Oh, see, I've been doing it wrong. Okay, there you go. Th- thank you for the, uh, for the uh, pronunciation correction. I... I don't I don't speak Chinese, so I'm I'm glad I'm glad you were able to help me out there. Now whenever you see X-I-T-T-E-R, you'll know how to pronounce that correctly. Um we've got so much news to dig into, and this is uh, we were talking about this, TK and I, um, on Best of Our Week also. This is just the little bit of a lull. It's the calm before the storm. MWC is right around the corner. We've already got people kind of gearing up for another wave of product announcements. And this year has been structured very differently. You've got companies that are getting way ahead of their normal release schedules. You've got Samsung trying to kind of tread water, keep their head above while also maintaining their unpacked schedule. This is really crazy stuff. So I I wanted to focus this week on a really news-heavy, news-block-heavy um, run of show, but then also once we get kind of into where we would normally start talking about gadgets and stuff, I, I do want to open this up a bit more and have some of that Q and A kind of conversation and stuff. There, if there are um, topics that we want to dig into, so why don't we chew through some housekeeping since I'm already rambling a little bit long 
already. And I'm trying to keep my voice from completely failing on me today. Last week got kind of rough. Um, I really did blow out my voice bad last week. So one second while I drink some coffee, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into some housekeeping. Oh, two turbo. Excited for the OnePlus Watch 2. Unfortunately, shattered my Pixel Watch in a freak electric unicycle accident. Well, two turbo, while I'm sure it's sad that you lost your Pixel Watch, really, I hope you're okay. <laughs> a Pixel Watch can be replaced. Um, I've had some pretty bad run-ins on mountain bikes, so I can't speak to any unicycle accidents, but I hope your, your, your unicycle accident wasn't too brutal on your person. Um... I've been putting out so much stuff, y'all. It's a, uh, it's a lot because everything then also needs to be, kind of be like talked about in quintuplicate across multiple social media accounts, and there really hasn't been a great way to manage distribution on all of that. So, I, I mean, like, I put out a, a new video or I wrote an editorial, and like, I'm exhausted by it an hour after it's been published. And to me, it's already like, well, that is old news that was weeks ago. And then I look back at my, at my blog and I'm like, holy cow. I'm talking about things from only a couple days ago and people are still like finding those articles and videos and I still feel like I've exhausted the topic. It's, it's heady stuff and I don't want to turn the show into yet another YouTubers are facing burnout, but we're facing burnout. A lot of us are like struggling in these conversations to really kind of keep a good, healthy grasp on this is the stuff that I think is exciting. This is the stuff that I think is is, is cool. These are the kinds of conversations that I want to to work with an audience. I, I, again, I said we were going to do housekeeping. I've already tangented myself. Um, I was kind of rocked. Uh, Hugh Jeffries has just announced that he's going to be uh, slowing down production on his channel. This is a man who uploaded like clockwork weekly. And you think like a week, that is so much time to put together like a, a topic and a video and to, to, to engage with that audience. But now his channel's at a tier where, you know, it really matters if some of those videos underperform a little and YouTube hammers you on that kind of stuff. It is so demoralizing when you go into your YouTube analytics and a video starts, ha- like, you start seeing red arrows. And it's really not a reflection of the audience. I keep trying to explain this, and, and it never really seems to take root in people who don't do this kind of influencer-style content creation. You could have a video that really would reach people, but if YouTube decides for you, that that video isn't as popular as some of your other videos, then it just vanishes. YouTube doesn't help you find audiences. So, like, I'm primarily a phone reviewer, but I'm trying to branch out. I'm really trying to spend, especially this year, more time with laptops and mini desktops and all these things. But instead of my videos ever showing up in conversations uh, around other channels that really do focus on mini PCs... My videos get kind of sent over to people who care about, like, LG smartphones. And then, oh, you know, the people who really watch videos about LG smartphones didn't like your video about a mini PC. I guess your video is just not very good. We're not going to send it out to anyone else. And that's the kind of YouTube vice grip that we find ourselves in. So, again, I, like yesterday I'm, I'm watching his Patreon video just like, man, he looks whooped. Hugh Jeffries is one of the, like, 
prime resources we can point to for a reasonable, educated, enlightened conversation about things like right to repair. Like, I love like a Louis, Louis Rossman, Louis, uh, the Rossman group videos. Awesome. I love his big spiky East coast in your face energy, but drawing people into the conversation in a way that like doesn't make people feel like they're being attacked. It's Hugh Jeffries. So, um, I only bring this up again because a lot of folks out there are really trying to say like, Hey, there's a story I want to tell. I don't know that I can tell that story. And that, that, that kind of crushes your soul a little bit. Um, let me see. Let me get this out of the way here. Oh man, two turbo. I separated my shoulder, but it's been a really quick recovery. The wallet is hurting from the hospital bill more than anything. Oof, two turbo. I'm really sorry to hear that, man. Uh, yeah, hope you're feeling better soon. Uh, Ghost Starscream is someone who doesn't make content, but watches content that I like. I'm not using YouTube as much as I used to, like back in 2017. I think a lot of us are kind of re-examining our relationship with social media. And we're also seeing like peaks and, and ebbs and flows, like with services like TikTok, which was experiencing like unprecedented growth and now is finding little, little plateau points where the audience gets kind of tired. <laughs> You're exhausting the audience with this strategy as well. So um, housekeeping, that's right. That's what we're doing right now. Uh, like I said, I put out a lot of stuff. Um, just the quick rundown. I, I did a, a review of the new Puro Quiet Plus headphones. They're active noise-canceling Bluetooth headphones supporting Aptex HD for kids, so smaller ear cups, smaller headbands designed for a comfier fit for children. And this video became a two-in-one because uh, years ago, we bought Lex the original version of these headphones, and... Uh, a, a five, now eight-year-old has been, uh, was she six? She was five or six. I can't remember exactly one, but around two years of little kid abuse. So it's really two videos in one. It's kind of following up on what the new tech and the new features are in the updated headset, and then also sharing what our experiences were with the old headset and how well it survived little kid abuse. Um, I feel like Parents should probably care about their kids hearing more as we face a nationwide epidemic of hearing loss. I did another workshop uh, with some high school students. A friend of mine from high school is now a high school teacher, and she had me in just to do a video conference with her class. And I asked the class, hey, so when you got, when, when y'all are listening to music, how many of you are turning the volume on your earbuds all the way to max? And it's a sea of teenagers like this. And all but two kind of did this, like, half-energy hand raise. And I guarantee you that the two who didn't raise their hands weren't managing their headphones better. They were just not participating with the old guy on the video conference screen. They were just bored by having to sit there and listen to me talk. That's bad. And as parents, we need to be doing a better job. And unfortunately... High schoolers, that's too late. <laughs> it's too late to completely undo all of those bad habits and make it seem cool. But I have an eight-year-old who still flinches when there are loud noises around her. 
and she manages her headphones. And even on these volume limited kid headphones, she can't turn those up to maximum. It's too loud. It hurts her ears. And when we give little kids features like active noise cancellation and ear cups that better fit and give passive noise reduction, we see naturally better listening habits than if we just give kids plasticky garbage with Disney princesses printed on the outside. So this video is crazy underperforming because it's like a kid topic video and that's another toxic part of YouTube, but it's a conversation that needs to be engaged with more regularly and it's something I feel like I should probably revisit from that series I did back a couple years ago, 2020 Hearing. I'm just talking about, because it's not just like, oh, protect your hearing. It's like, hey, if you protect your hearing, the quality gets real good. (laughs) You get better audio products. So uh, there's a whole video out on those headphones. Um, I also did a quick editorial video. Windows on ARM is ready for more powerful hardware. This is already getting those, those idiot controversial replies like, Oh, Windows on ARM is terrible, and Microsoft can't do anything right, and what the problem is is software. And then you point out, like, well, you're not going to get better software unless you see an uptick in Windows on ARM hardware. Uh, You understand how this works, right? Oh, software developers need to care and make the apps. And you're like, all right, cool. Uh, I'm so glad I've got a whole crew of people who really know how technology works leaving comments on my videos. But... It's really just me sharing my thoughts about how Windows on ARM as a platform is ready. It's been ready. What we need is more powerful hardware and a better price-to-performance ratio. So if you would like to join that conversation, that video is for you. And then uh, I also wrote an editorial. So this is a written piece comparing the MetaQuest to Apple Vision Pro. Zuckerberg did it right. I am not a fan of Mark Zuckerberg. I think most of what he has done in the world of social media and big data has been pretty toxic. I really feel he needs, uh, his company specifically, not, I mean, maybe even himself personally, but his companies specifically need to face a ton more regulatory scrutiny. I think that the impact of his actions on the world have been a net negative. But Mark Zuckerberg took to Instagram to talk about his experiences using Apple's mixed reality headset. And he delivered a verdict where he declared his own headset the superior option. Now, obviously, we would all point to that and say, that's pretty (laughs) self-serving. But I don't feel he was wrong. And we can talk about this later if we want to kind of dig into the nuts and bolts and stuff like that, um, if that's a topic that you all want to cover. If not... I have written an editorial where I kind of break down, you know, what I think is sort of the lay of the land, media and tech reviewing and journalism, and where there are these huge knowledge gaps that are kind of enforced by tech journalists. So I I watched his review, and I was nodding along with a lot of the points that he made, and I felt so much of that data was omitted from other people's comparisons of the Vision Pro against other headsets. But every mainstream publication was so quick to rush out and knee-jerk. Oh, but I mean, obviously it's the best headset. I mean, obviously it's, it's better than a Quest. Uh, you know, obviously Apple did the best thing. But with nothing to quantify that statement. 
And that's what Zuckerberg, I think, I feel like he stepped into a conversation that helped illuminate how you would actually go comparing things. Um, and again, we, we can talk about Vision Pro and some of the reactions to reviews. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about the fact that in some markets, the Vision Pro returns are higher than average for other Apple products. Um, but I'm very disappointed in how the tech press has given Apple an 11-year runway to put out any kind of face computer, and they're still really bad about talking about VR. Most of these folks that are writing reviews on the biggest publications and on the largest YouTube channels have had zero, or or almost zero, uh, interest in covering other VR headsets, and their mixed reality coverage for Apple is completely lacking context of where we are currently with mixed reality solutions. Um, And then lastly, this one's just hilarious. Uh, I need to grade myself poorly on my own bias. I do a thing. When a new phone comes out, I don't rush a camera review. I started doing this purposely because of OnePlus phones. And it got me into a lot of fights with the editorial team over at Pocket Now. Obviously, the most profitable window for any new gadget is right before consumers can really buy it. Unfortunately, we have created an industry where the only way you really make money on your efforts is if you're the one going, First! First, I got a first! Do you have it yet? No, you don't, because I have it first! And for some reason... People care about that conversation window more than any other experience that you can have with a tech product. It is the least applicable period of time to talk about a gadget. It is the least informative window because you've had it the least amount of time and the product is still likely not in a finished state. We all know as soon as like a OnePlus phone comes out, there's like another patch or a big massive OTA. I've gotten two on the OnePlus 12. I got like the OnePlus Open still doesn't have Android 14, but I got another massive full operating system OTA recently. So um, I started doing, I started making this promise. When I make a camera review, it is never on embargo or opening week software. I refuse to do it. That is not the experience consumers are going to have. The majority of consumers are going to buy in after the device has gotten some kind of patch or polish. I personally fell into a trap on the Nokia 9 where I kept waiting for Nokia to give us the things they promised. And this is for the whole phone, but also specifically for some of their camera claims. And I never... I never really finished properly judging, reviewing, or assessing that phone. I fell for my own trap of waiting for the company to deliver what they promised. And the Nokia 9 still stands, I think, as the perfect example of you can't trust the manufacturer to give you everything they promised. So the Pixel 8 Pro comes out, and a number of the big claims for the Pixel 8 Pro are related to AI features. So I waited. 
And I waited for a while to get things like, you know, better support for stylized photos. And of course, video boost was a big deal um, promise, you know, how they were going to improve because pixel video is so terrible. Um, and really it's not, uh, but I waited for video boost and I reshot all of my test samples again (laughs) on the pixel a pro after a few updates. And in doing that, it kind of sucked all the energy and all the wind out of my sails. And I was really disappointed in myself that I had waited so long and so little had changed. I waited for these updates. I waited for video boost in these features and it really wouldn't have changed any of my assessment on the phone, the camera, its performance, what I like about it, what I was concerned about. It was all almost exactly the same. And then it ended up taking me weeks after that to kind of build up the energy in the middle of my review. By the way, what I'm leading to is I finally published a Pixel 8 Pro camera deep dive. So that's available on the Patreon, patreon.com slash somegadgetguy. It's a 33-minute long video. Um, This one is a little bit abbreviated in some sections because we know what Pixel cameras do. A a major aspect of the Pixel-y performance has not changed significantly since like the Pixel 5. So there are parts of this where I'm kind of skipping over some of my other, you know, like analysis, um, but in a good way, because like the things that we count on a Pixel to do are still kind of the same. But I, it really did kind of rock in my shoe. We, we work so hard to shoot all this content, to, to write up our scripts, look at all of the, the data, try and do this analysis, stitch all this commentary together, put out half-hour-long videos. And I got to this point where I had interrupted my normal flow and gave Google this huge benefit of the doubt, and this huge window to, like, I'm, I'm sure they're going to get these things right. Or... I know Video Boost just came out and it's server side, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe a new, you know, update is going to is going to improve this or do something crazy that I wasn't expecting and then I got to the end of it and just like I've got to finish this video. In the middle of this review, I actually say, I don't even know if I should have finished this video. <laughs> I'm not sure it was worth it. So, uh, that's now live. (laughs) You can watch it a phone that was out in November uh now finally has a camera deep dive on it. Uh, coming up next is the Vivo X100 Pro, and I promise I won't wait three more months to put out a Vivo X100 Pro camera deep dive. I just spilled water all over my, I think I got water on my mic. Cool. If I start sounding really fuzzy or buzzy, please let me know. Um, we gotta, we gotta pause here real quick because Ricardo gifted two tier one subs to Roth Sothi and Raymondit. Uh, Ricardo and McCorcoran uh, subscribed with Prime. So uh, both of you, thank you so much for the support and for keeping the channel up and running. And this fanfare of glory brought to you by one Mr. Barry Johnson who uh, hooked me up with the stream deck is for you. Y'all rock. Thank you so much. Super, super cool of you. All right. Um, Let's see. Uh, let's, I'm going to say power of Apple. So yeah, there are a couple comments here. We will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about, um, some of this vision pro stuff. Uh, two turbo. That's terrifying. Good hearing is so, so important. 
Um, Simon says, Hypno, Juan should have wrapped the message to the kids. I read over your comment twice. <laughs> I think you might know why I read over your comment a second time before I said your comment out loud. Uh, from Nation, I've actually been using the hearing wellness feature with my Pixel Buds Pro. I've been thankful for noise canceling because I need them higher than what the recommended volume is. Otherwise, all of these little things, you can retrain your ears. And, and I have worked really hard to kind of bring my listening down. And I started with like the LG phones, the quad DAC. The amp on those phones was scary loud. If you weren't careful, you could really blow out. You could blow out cheap earbuds, but you could blow out your ears. Um, Pakistan, the problem with Windows on ARM isn't ARM, but Windows. <laughs> okay. I mean, I get it. You not like Windows, but the problem with Windows on ARM isn't Windows. I mean, like, if you enjoy working in Windows, Windows on ARM is ready for you to get better hardware and better software. Um, yeah, Raymond, it. The, the problem with Windows on ARM is the lack of computers running Windows on ARM. Right now, there are three good options. You've got the Surface Pro 9 SQ3. You've got that Lenovo. I want to say it's like an XS something, 13. And then you've got the Robo Ancala. You've got three options. What developer is going to update their old legacy x86 software for three options? But if you actually know WTF you're doing on a computer, I'm running a lot of Linux inside Windows on my uh, Robo Ancala, and it's a screamer with all of the uh, Linux apps that properly support ARM chips. Um, Let me see... Yep, McCorcoran, the embargo culture on YouTube is insane. 80, 80 videos released the same minute on embargo day. And we all have to play that game. I mean, that's how the embargoes work, and that's the relationship we have with these, these companies. But then that utterly... Dis- YouTube helps destroy any sustained conversation unless you've got some hook on this is a popular trending topic thing. Um... Let's see. Let me get this out of the way here. Yeah. I, Raymond, did I, 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 I agree there. Uh, Windows on ARM needs a business line to get market share. I think Windows on ARM is going to find some success in the IT space, in the, like, the fleet vehicle space, because a lot of people are going to start looking at that as the solutions we now point to for MacBooks. MacBooks are are a much better performance per watt and get better battery life out in the field when you're away from a charger. Right now, a Windows laptop is a better portable desktop. You can get a Windows laptop that is demonstrably more powerful than a MacBook, but you can't use it as flexibly (laughs) with the same flexibility as you can a MacBook because, one, you can't get all the power out of the CPU and GPU if it's unplugged. It, you have a creator laptop, you've got like a Core i9 with uh, an RTX 4080. Yeah, none of that runs completely off of battery. You have to plug it in and then you get the full use of that amazing Core i9 and 4080. So you don't have a portable PC, you have a relocatable desktop, an easily moved desktop. But then you don't have the computer you really bought when you're unplugged. 
So it, it's that. Once we start seeing the, and also the Qualcomm modems giving us better 5G support directly built into these things, then I think you're going to start seeing a lot of the Surface Pro 9 style tablets in the mix for other industry. Like I keep looking at, um, you, you see a lot of iPads at like car rental places. You know, I got off the airplane, I'm going to the, the, to the parking lot. A, a woman comes out and she's got an iPad and she pushes a couple buttons. I get a key and I drive off. And it's in those kinds of situations where now Windows on ARM, I think, is able to make a much bigger impact um, getting people getting companies those types of lower lower battery requirements but higher tiers of performance sorry that was really complicated i didn't need to make it that complicated hey podcast listeners i work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to somegadgetguy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for support some gadget guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, Sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to somegadgetguy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. Yeah, Raymond, we use micro towers attached to the back of monitors for 90% of our deployment. Windows on ARM would be more power efficient. Yeah, those mini PCs are awesome. And as soon as I get a Qualcomm option in a little mini PC body with good active cooling, that's going to be rad. <laughs> I mean, again, like that Robo Kala, it's got that older Qualcomm 8CX Gen 3. It is it's more powerful than any of the Celeron or um, sort of adjacent low-power x86 options. Well, I I don't get it. I really don't. Like, there are... Sorry, I, I'm going off on a tangent, and I'm about to make another commercial for the Robo and Kala. We don't, we don't need to go through all that. Because I do need to shout out Yar2084. Subscribe to Prime. This is the second month. Subscribe for two months. You get this fanfare of glory, courtesy of one Mr. Barry Johnson who hooked me up with Stream Deck. Boom! Yeah! That was a perfect transition because as we've um, spent 40 minutes on housekeeping, <laughs> um, uh, we're going to chew through a really heavy news block here. All of the links uh, are for all of these articles, including all of the housekeeping articles, are going to be available on the show notes for this week's episode. You can find that on my blog. That's somegadgetguy.com. Uh, some and uh, we've got a lot to talk about. So um, if there's ever any significant political news uh, in terms of the regula- regulatory space or the FCC. That's what we start off with. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. I want you to read up on what's happening here. 
but new rules are going into effect. And the FCC finally has a, a, a majority. They're, they're no longer in deadlock. It took us three years into the Biden administration to finally get another chairperson uh, installed at the FCC. I say installed. This is a human being. Um, this is coming by way of the register written up by Brandon Vigliarolo, and I have mispronounced your last name, and I apologize. FCC gets tough. Telcos must now tell you when your personal info is stolen. That is a ridiculous headline. I want you to think about that headline. Telecommunications companies like carriers and ISPs must now tell you when your personal info is stolen. We would think, yeah, That shouldn't be some new rule that the FCC is rolling out. If there's a security or a data breach or some type of problem with customer data, of course the telecommunications companies need to tell us. That's not really been a rule, (laughs) y'all. Massive data breach, usually you only get the full disclosures when some other outside auditor says, oh, hey, by the way, uh, AT&T leaked all your data. And AT&T has to go, uh, no, that's not what happened. Um, some customers were affected and uh, the CEO takes full responsibility and we're going to lay off more people so shareholders are happy. <laughs> that's the chain of events. So now the FCC is saying, hey, if there's a problem, you have this window of time to notify your users. And it's like seven days. And then, for the full impact of what's happened in the breach, we're giving you a slightly wider window. But within those windows, you have to reach out to law enforcement. You have to reach out to regulators. These have not been rules. (laughs) I just... It seems like so... Such an obvious part of this, like, consumer business relationship, but that's how far behind we are in adapting older legislation to a new era of telecommunications. That, that's how far behind we are. Now, of course, if for some reason, if you're on the conservative side of the aisle, um, they have been against this and they're trying to push back, um, uh, push back against this. Um, hold on. There is a part of this article that I do want to quote. Um, okay, let me let me go back into screen share here. I, I'm I'm trying to find it live, and I should have highlighted it. Uh, okay, so this is the funniest part of this is one of the one of the arguments against this coming from the conservatives per the FCC, the cellular telecommunications industry association, the CTIA is one of the major um, lobbyist groups for the telecommunications industry. They raised an objection on several grounds, including that the FCC rule would create a system of dual jurisdiction between the FCC and FTC. Once the latter's rule goes into the, goes into effect. That's not how any of this works. The FTC and the FCC overlap on some types of policy. But that doesn't mean rules would be contradictory. This is a a non-argument. When you look at how the FTC manages their their regulations and what they have purview over, what what they are allowed to weigh in on, 
Over the last several years, almost every single one of their major reports has added some type of language to their report saying, and what we need is the FCC to get involved in this aspect. The biggie was the one that I shared a couple years back. The FTC did a full accounting of all of the data that your ISP is currently stealing from you and selling off. Everything you do on the internet is attached to a big bucket of data that your carrier or ISP basically just puts up for the highest bidder to the point where it is very easy to to sift through that data and find personally identifying patterns of behavior. So much so, we were able to find Secret Service members' cell phones on the Trump detail when he was president. So President Trump had a crew of Secret Service uh, officers, officers, Secret Service agents, um, that would protect him. And we could buy the data from the cell phone carriers to find where his Secret Service detail was. If someone wants to get to your data, it's no longer, well, you got to have a warrant. You got to do this. You got to, you just go buy it. (laughs) Verizon will sell it to you. So at the end of the FTC's report is a major portion of their assessment saying, and by the way, most of this is out of our control. You need an FCC that can protect consumers and we need to return to policies and and enact things like uh, net neutrality. I'm grossly oversimplifying and over-abbreviating the the end of their report. But you can go read it. It's still on the FTC website. It's actually a really good read. It's not a long um, uh, report. So the second you've got like the CTIA popping up saying, oh, but we don't want the FCC to do that. What if the FCC gets in the way of the FTC. What if, what if there's a problem between the two regulators? Uh, that, oh no, they can't have that. Because I, I promise you, an FCC that is starting to enact tougher regulations against carriers and ISPs is likely gonna start saying, hey, maybe it's bad and it's against your Fourth Amendment rights to have an entity that operates mostly on public infrastructure, that all of the data lines of the internet have been paid for by taxpayers. We've been giving them sweetheart zoning deals. We've been giving them tax breaks. We've been letting them tack on additional fees and not getting a whole lot for our money. Like we don't have fiber to home, even though we've been promised that several, we paid for it several times over. I feel with this, the next step would be the FCC saying, Hey, and now we've got to start talking about disclosures for what data you sell off from consumers. And also, you can't just sell the data to law enforcement. If they want data on a particular consumer, they need to have a warrant. And these companies make a lot of money on your data. So my feeling is the CTIA is trying to get ahead of this where they're report, you know, it, this is simply about reporting on data breaches and cybersecurity and stuff like that, because I feel like the next step would be much harsher penalties on trafficking user data. I'm just saying, it seems to me like that would be a, a pretty straightforward chain of events. <laughs> Uh, 
Uh, Ghost Starscream, what if an ISP doesn't tell you that your data has been stolen? Is it going to be a quadruple class action lawsuit? So read through, because now we're not talking about class action. We're talking about federally assigned penalties from regulators in how business is conducted. Because right now, your only option for justice is a class action lawsuit. And the company apparently doesn't even need to tell you that your data has been breached. That's never been a rule. I know, I'm grossly oversimplifying again for comedic effect. But it is shocking to me that like the FCC is like, hey, we should have a better rule here, guys. Uh, moving on, this is another uh, story in the regula- uh, regulatory space that validates my opinions on companies like Apple. Um, uh, this is coming by way of Tech Radar, written up by Chiara Castro. Illegal to break encryption, the European Court of Human Rights rules. Um, the European Court of Human Rights banned all legal efforts of weakening encryption of secure communications in Europe. Encryption ensures the enjoyment of fundamental rights such as privacy and freedom of expression, the judgment reads, while helping citizens and businesses to defend themselves against abuses of information technologies. Hence, the ruling to outlaw legislations could open up back doors for criminals to exploit. The decision was welcomed with enthusiasm by privacy experts that have long called the EU Commission to withdraw their CSAM scanning proposal known as Chat Control, which plans to enable authorities to scan all citizens' private communications to halt the spread of dangerous content. This one I took kind of personal, and it's one of the main reasons why I've never rejoined uh, covering Apple products on my channel. When Apple announced that they were going to be wedging these enormous backdoors into iOS products that would report directly to law enforcement agencies and that they were inventing technologies to unravel hash data so that they could sort of see everything that you were doing on your phone, I took that kind of personal. And I made a video years ago saying, hey, I cannot in good conscience bring any attention in reviews to Apple products in a traditional review structure because I fundamentally disagree. I viscerally disagree with this business practice. And I was basically called a pervert. <laughs> I have, I, I ended up blocking so many of the comments because like I need to police my own comments on YouTube where if people are putting bad language in comments, I can get a channel strike. So I'm muting and blocking all of these cha- all of these accounts that are leaving these comments, basically just calling me uh, a pervert, and I must be in favor of trafficking abuse materials. And I was in a Twitter Spaces where this like posh UK journalist is like, well, but I mean, like obviously, if you're for encryption, you're that means you're for you know, child abuse. That, that, that's what it means. I mean, you can try and hedge it any way you want, but that's, that's, what it, you, that's what you're for. And to me, this was such a frustrating aspect of the Apple conversation because really, all this was was a way for Apple to reduce their server costs. Apple is this massive corporate entity, and when information is on an Apple server on iCloud... It's their responsibility to make sure that their servers are not being used to traffic abuse materials. So they have to scan all of that content. And that 
is expensive. But that's what you sign up for when you're a cloud service provider. Apple's solution to save money on their cloud on their cloud storage on their hosting responsibilities was to have every phone do the scanning for them and then report up to Apple what was about to be uploaded to iCloud. This was never about protecting children because this is the least effective strategy for stemming the creation of abuse material. This was only a way for Apple to reduce their server bills. (laughs) And you had this army of sycophants running out there because Apple presented it in a great way. We're protecting the children. We've got all these organizations that want us to help protect the children. But I've had sit-down... There is actually a really in-depth interview on my YouTube channel from years ago where I'm speaking with an official from one of these organizations and talking about what you need to do and putting boots on the ground and working with local law enforcement and making it, you know, sort of cross-national so that you can find where these things are being created. And none of that would have been improved by having your phone report on you to law enforcement. That is the, the least effective part of the chain for stopping this practice. I want billions of dollars spent on enforcing the aspects of law enforcement that do help us stop the spread of abuse materials. That is a much better and much more effective um, way to go about protecting children than helping Apple just reduce their server costs. Because immediately, if you're privacy-focused at all, you could see, well, Apple is reporting to law enforcement, and they're giving law enforcement this special hash data that helps them figure out when images have been altered and can kind of predict what images look like other images based on the hash. So as soon as that goes to China, anyone who is a dissident <laughs> or has anything critical to say of China is, is even less protected by their mobile devices. Their mobile devices are going to report on them to the Chinese authorities. And and again, Apple's washing their hands of it. Oh, I mean they're not they're not sending it to us. The the iPhone isn't reporting to us that bad things were on the phone. We've set up a special commission that sends that directly to law enforcement. So we'll be complying with the local laws and regulations and your phones will report on you to them which is way worse if you live in China or Russia or certain areas of the Middle East, anywhere with a slightly more authoritarian government. So a while back, Germany said, no, shut it down. And Apple eventually had to pull the plug on their their plans there. It was never a good plan. And we had so many mainstream media news entities. Uh, It was a Washington Post invites Craig Federici on. We've got tough questions for Craig and basically just let him regurgitate all of the Apple marketing speak. There was no pushback from any of the American journalists on what was happening here. It was almost almost universally presented in the mainstream or in the the top places. Like, yeah, I mean, obviously there are some concerns, but like, we've got to protect the kids. And I, I was called a pervert for having <laughs> some, some qualms about breaking open your portable devices to let governments have direct access to the content on your device. So 
I feel validated. <laughs> this is a step above some of the work being done by EU regulators. Because I think it's fair to say, while I've really enjoyed the, the, look, watching the EU wrestle with some of these other like marketplace and anti-competition uh, situations, there has been a bubbling undercurrent in the regulator space on how do we dismantle encryption. We keep fighting this fight. We've been fighting this fight since like the late 80s. Excuse me. You've got a computer and it's got data on it. Well, how can the government see the data on your computer? And then a bunch of people say, the government should not be able to see the data on my computer. And the government then says, well, what do you have to hide? You must be a criminal. And we never, we never seem to fully finish that conversation. Every time another sort of era of computing arrives, it's the same like, oh, but if you don't have anything to hide, you, you must, oh, you're a criminal if you're trying to encrypt your conversations. Privacy is for everybody. Security is for everybody. And the second you purposely build a method of reporting on content on your device, then you've, you've destroyed privacy. Apple was trying to destroy privacy and security because they didn't want to front the costs of scanning media on iCloud. <laughs> Until an Apple executive can sit down and tell me that that was not an aspect of their decision to try and enact this content on device scanning, I, I, I need to see any other reason why they would have put themselves through so much scrutiny, make such a big play, such a big conversation point out of that, go against all of their marketing, what stays on the, what happens on the iPhone stays on the iPhone, all of that nonsense, Th shred all of that security goodwill. This was the company that fought law enforcement over unlocking iPhones. Remember? Criminals have data on these iPhones. And Apple was the company saying, no, we can't break the encryption on the iPhone once and hope that it's never found out. Apple was correct then in maintaining the security and the data privacy features of the iPhone. But that's not the Apple we have today. <laughs> so, no one's going to make any big news out of this. I had to pat myself on the back. <laughs> that really is the whole reason why I host a podcast. Uh, we're going to change the name of the podcast from SGGQA to Juan Was Right and Pat and Back Pats. <laughs> DTNL, did they ask Craig whether he was a Chinese citizen? They didn't ask Craig anything. They kind of set him up and he was like, well, Craig, there's some controversy. Explain. <laughs> and then Craig just says a whole bunch of cool things about, yeah, well, we're taking those criticisms really seriously. Cool. It wasn't, it wasn't really a, a thing, was it, Craig? Um, Muppinish, I'm late, but I'm here. Got caught setting up Linux on my PC instead of Windows. <laughs> That's good, though, Muppinish. We're talking about data privacy and security. Linux is a phenomenal solution for you to make a more hardened uh, computer. Um, oh, and that's what you mentioned immediately after that on the topic of privacy. I'm going to set up Ubuntu Touch on a phone this week, probably. <laughs> Good job, Muppinish. Uh, 
Ha Sam, I changed the name to I Feel Validated. <laughs> I felt really good when Germany was like, no, Apple shut it down. And then Apple had to make this like really quiet concession. It's like a minor press release in the Apple News site. No one was talking about it anymore. It was like, yeah, I guess we're not going to do that anymore. Okay, anyway, here's the new iPhone. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Ricardo. Yeah, there's been a lot of this too. Uh, I heard yesterday a whole spiel from an Apple fanboy defending the safety of using the eye goggles to, uh, to add then, quote, I would never feel safe if Google or some other Chinese company made these, end quote. Whatever, dude. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I really feel like glass holes need to be a phrase back in the common vernacular again because like you have no idea what those vision pro people are doing with those cameras right they could be taking photos or videos of anything you don't know uh it's obviously that's that's got to be the big why aren't we concerned about the children why aren't we protecting children from perverts using uh vision pro headsets that's that's a question that's a question we could ask who's asking it that's what i want to know that's where this whole podcast has turned into Fox News. <laughs> oh, man, that's so great. <laughs> All right, let's get to... Yeah, a DTNL glass hole Pro Max one. Not to be confused with those plebeian glass holes. <laughs> you don't want to be a poor person. Own these goggles. That's hilarious. <laughs> all right um uh, moving right along uh we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one i find the competition in the marketplace for streaming media is is fascinating right now it is frustrating because like all of the video streaming services are impupifying radically fast but there are these little glimmers of conversation surrounding things like uh, music. Um, Apple Music, uh, this is written up by Javier Espinoza over at the Financial Times and then reshared over on Ars Technica. Apple is about to be fined 500 million euro by the EU over music streaming. Uh, a commission accuses Apple of abusing its market p- position after a complaint by Spotify. Um, so I want to say the fine, which is in the region of 500 million euros expected to be announced early next month is the culmination of a European commission antitrust probe into whether Apple has used its own platform to favor its services over those of competitors. So man, there's so many little political elements here, but this is another story is going to unfold when we get one of these little antitrust funds. And I say little, it's 500 million euro. That's nothing to Apple. That's a rounding error in one quarterly financial statement, right? That has almost no impact on the profitability of Apple's services, let alone the profits generated over an entire fiscal quarter. But these little uh, instances stack up, and that's where we start getting the much bigger regulatory actions that move us forward. And it's specifically in this claim Did Apple use its information from competing products to harm competition on Apple devices? So Spotify gets all this traffic. Apple gets to see 
all of Spotify's proprietary business information. They know how much money is going through Spotify. They know how much streaming is happening on Spotify. iOS devices are reporting back to Apple so they can better craft their own ad ad metrics and services, uh, uh, services, uh, data on services. This one's kind of a big deal. I mean, I want you to read through the Ars Technica. I just want you to give Ars Technica more clicks for this kind of uh, investigative reporting. And Financial Times, obviously, is part of their umbrella. Um, but that one's, th- this one's kind of a big deal. I recently went back and did a recut. Um, so there was the, the, the House Judiciary Committee uh, interviewing big tech. So they had Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google, all of the CEOs from those companies. And I cut up the portions with Tim Cook. And I I don't believe, I, I've been making this joke for a while. Like, I kind of feel like Tim Cook might have perjured himself when it come, came to questions where, you know, they were asking him about, does Apple bully developers? I think he gets really close. Um, but there are a number of questions in that House, uh, in that House committee meeting asking Tim Cook about things like, well, wait a minute. You have all this proprietary data on your competitors. How are you not using that to enrich your own products and services? Isn't that anti-competitive? And Tim Cook, at, at one point late in the, uh, in, in the testimony, has to go, like, oh, well, I'll get back to you on that data. <laughs> this is the outcome of that. This complaint goes back to 2019. And Tim Cook testifies before a House Judiciary Committee in 2020. And now it's playing out in 2024. Oh, you know what? Maybe it's real bad (laughs) that Apple can just take any data from any app in the App Store and then say, yeah, we want want a cut of that too. (laughs) Because right on the heels of this, we're also getting the update that Apple is going to disable web apps in Safari Because it's just too hard. It's too hard to comply with the new browser and DMA rules. So we're just going to kill functionality on the iPhone. Uh, This is, by the way, written up by my uh, nerd crush, John Brodkin. Apple disables iPhone web apps and EU says it's too hard to comply with the rules. Um, Apple is removing the ability to install home screen web apps from iPhones and iPads in Europe when iOS 17.4 comes out, saying it's too hard to keep offering the feature under the European Union's new Digital Markets Act. Apple is required to comply with the law by March 6. And I cannot point to a more cynical and least good faith effort from any tech brand. I'm going back to how Microsoft used to include Internet Explorer in Windows, and the EU savaged Microsoft for that business practice. And it kind of did help. That's where we got sort of the flexibility and the uh, the choices that we have for browsers that then eventually got whittled back down again. But this is, I mean, like we see a 500 million euro fine for Apple on music antitrust. That's something Microsoft was under heavy scrutiny just for including Windows Media Player built into the operating system. The EU was trying to take Microsoft apart for these basic functionality things that when I would just take for granted on any computer that you buy needs to have a media player. And then you go and download VLC and everyone's way happier. So I love it. 
Apple is showing us who they are. Apple is showing us we'll pay a 500 million euro fine because we're going to make so much more money by doing this other scummy business tactic. Oh, you're going to tie our hands and make us, force us to use, to, to allow other browser engines on the iPhone? Well, you know, if, if you're going to make the iPhone uh, have access to other app stores, then we're going to create this convoluted uh, accounting system where we still need to get a 30% cut of anything that's installed on the iPhone, even if it's not installed in the, even if it's not installed from the iOS app store. And then because it would be easy to circumvent that reporting if we had progressive web apps, we'll just kill progressive web apps. Apple is effing toxic. These business practices are horrific for consumers. This is the late stage capitalism version of what a walled garden can be and increasingly harms the real on the ground consumer experience. There's, there's really no support for this. There's no supporting it. It, it, it boggles the mind <laughs> that people are out there like, no, I don't want a competing app store because then I will get malware. You're like, yeah, if you're stupid and you install malware, because we just saw over the last week, Apple approved a copycat app that was basically malware and other apps from that same developer were still available after Apple killed the copycat app. You're not safe in a walled garden. <laughs> You're just, you just have fewer options to find other safe things to do from your walled garden. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty gross. Um, Apple is again compli- maliciously complying with the absolute strictest legal definition of what the DMA is going to be, and uh, it's going to in- hopefully encourage yet another round of regulatory scrutiny. I really hope those Apple lawyers are. Uh, I mean, those Apple lawyers are definitely racking up their billables right now. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet, and I hope you check out what they have to offer. I started Tech Tech Potato with a vision. I'd already been covering processes and technology for 10 years as senior editor for Anantech, but only through the written word. With today's media so diverse, I chose to one-up my vision and move to video and explain the nuance of complex topics. Hi, my name's Ian Cutris and I'm Chief Spud at Tech Tech Potato. The goal at Tech Tech Potato is to have fun, to talk about areas of the technology industry that aren't always covered. Sometimes there are non-obvious aspects to a topic which doesn't always come across in written media, and that's where I strike. The channel is also there to shine a light into the areas that most end users don't even know exist. There's also a tongue-in-cheek joke. Processors are called chips, and just like a bag of chips, I like to get my teeth into these things, hence Tech Tech Potato. The thumbnails are stupid, but the content is real. If you're interested about how things in this technology industry work, or for reports on behind-the-scenes events, plus some classic British humour, then head on over. You'll be welcome with open arms. Yeah, McCorkerin, exactly that. It's funny how Apple fans are mad at the EU for giving them more options. And I, I actually saw, again, from someone who should have known better, it was like a tech reporter on threads say, Oh, but other browsers. And you're like, are you kidding me? You're worried about security 
and you're saying Safari is the good solution. <laughs> Safari has been the leakiest. It's the, the least secure. Every single time there's like a massive exploit or some like, you know, huge, scary malware intrusion attack, something like that. It's like, well, we found this exploit in Safari. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, it's another Safari. That, people who track bugs and malware and put out bounties, they don't pay out bounties on Safari anymore. Safari is that easy to compromise. It's terrible. <laughs> and you're stuck with it if you have a, an iOS device. It's going to be good if other people will make browsers. But I don't think companies like, I don't think Mozilla is going to rush out there and try and get uh, Firefox on the iPhone because now they'll have to maintain wholly separate versions for the EU than what they'll have available here in the United States because Apple isn't facing that kind of scrutiny here. It just doesn't it just doesn't play out like at all. Oh, at Nation, haha, I think we got blocked by that person, Juan. Yeah, I think we did. <laughs> it was such a dumb argument to make from someone who should have known better. And I think I, I really tried to not go super snarky, but I had to go a little snarky because it's Safari. Yeah, Barry Johnson, and that's just one example. Safari had a super leak over a year and Apple didn't say anything until they fixed it. Safari, this guy had to be joking. Um, yeah, we, we covered that, I want to say it was about a year ago. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the situation that we reported, and this is just one, one example of the myriad numbers of problems with Safari. But Safari had a problem where anything you did across browser tabs could be seen by other browser tabs. So one of the things I love about Firefox is each browser tab becomes kind of a high RAM usage individual um, run application of Firefox. And you can put things in containers that are completely walled off. I don't know how secure they really are, but it is at least the appearance of a company trying to give us a more secure option. So right now, Threads in Firefox has this little white stripe on it. And that little white stripe says, this is a Facebook container. So we are preventing Facebook, Instagram, and threads from seeing anything else that's happening across your browser. Safari was wide open. So if you had one browser tab open, you had another browser tab open, they could both see everything that you were doing across those browser tabs. It's like, this is terrible. This is terrible software. And it's, you're stuck with it on an iPad. You're stuck with it on an iPhone. And it doesn't matter what other browser you use because they're all Safari engines. They're just different skins on top of Safari. So anyway, um, yeah, <laughs> Sam, Venta Sam, uh, our walled garden is super safe. Watch out for the people-sized Venus flytraps. Uh, that's the other one. I, I, I actually didn't put the link in this week. Uh, there is another exploit, a very uh, creepy biometric stealing Android malware is now available for iOS devices. And so uh, with all of the very intricate data that Face ID collects on your person, now that malware, which was only an Android malware, is now able to steal information from like the secure enclaves of your iPhone. It's not like a, a, I'm not laughing because it's funny that people could get hurt by this. I'm exasperated by this illusion of security that Apple sells people. And then I feel like that encourages them to do riskier things 
than they otherwise would have. There is no better security. An iPhone is not more secure inherently than any Android device out there. As soon as it's in a real person's hand and they start doing real world data things with it. Second you fire up Safari, you're way more compromised. The second you use Siri, your data is going to Google. And now, depending on your bad behavior, you could pick up malware that's going to get all of your face ID data. And if you're using that for your banking or as passcodes for your for your uh, you know managing your money or your home finances or your medical data, they will have the ability to get into that stuff. So th- this is the the broader conversation is we need to be doing a better job of educating consumers on better practices, not letting them believe Apple marketing when Apple is actually one of the companies that's trying to compromise their data privacy and security to save money on their server hosting. <laughs> ah, drink more water, staying hydrated. Oh, yeah. So Firefox isn't immune from criticism right now because they also had a new interim CEO step in and say, hey, we also want to do a whole bunch of AI stuff. So I'm very anxious about where Firefox could go. But that's a, in the future, one will have to recommend against Firefox when they do something bad. Right now, I feel Firefox is still the best collection of built-in browser tools and add-ons to better protect what happens in your browser. But it's going to get messy here pretty soon. Um, Yeah, JFR, nothing is secured if it's connected to the internet, no matter if it's Android or iPhone or Windows or, or Linux. But I feel, you know, for those of us who are the big geeks in our families, we can at least host some of those conversations to say better practices and then also, like, if you want to take an approach, you will lose some of the convenience. You know, like having your browser unplug you from services so that they're not constantly monitoring your activities means that you kind of need to do things like, I guess I need to log in more frequently than just having all of this stuff on autopilot. They want the apathy of everything being frictionless and on autopilot. But you can set up a pretty decent hardened Linux system And it's a pain to use, but it's going to be way more secure (laughs) than sort of like an open Windows 11 system, just letting everything kind of happen. Um, I did have this other Apple story. I want to save that to kind of wrap up our our, uh, gadget block. Um, This is another one. I'll be curious to see how it plays out. I'm only bringing it up, and I'm doing the bad habit thing that I tell people not to do, but just based off the headline. Um, This is written up by uh, Sarah Fielding over at Engadget. UK moves another step closer to banning phones in schools. It follows countries like France and Italy in restricting phones during class. As a parent of an eight-year-old and already seeing the terrible behavior of other parents and how they shame and bully people for having the wrong color text messages, I am increasingly on board initiatives to examine the impact of removing personal communications devices from kids during the school day. If it's a policy, like right now, our school has a policy where kids can't have gadgets in class. This makes perfect sense for like first to fifth graders, right? 
I don't think anyone's going to question that. But during that school day, what we do is we've got Lex's smartwatch in her backpack. So we at least know the last known location of our daughter before she had to take her backpack off. And then as soon as she's out of class, she puts the smartwatch on. And then if there's any kind of emergency or communication or something happens, she is empowered to be able to contact us on her little smartwatch. I kind of feel like getting especially into junior high, maybe not high school for future generations of kids, but kids are so awful to each other. Through junior high, I kind of feel they're little animals who have not learned proper tactful personal relationship skills. So empowering them with pocket supercomputers to use throughout the school day is probably a bad idea. So read through this article, but kind of keep abreast of what's happening because this one's interesting to see the UK following some of the EU policy that's being set up. And I'm kind of for it, especially because from what I've seen from parents, we don't have parents teaching kids good cyber health behavior. We have parents that are kind of shrugging off these claims of bullying because they're the ones bullying And then that behavior is being passed down to their kids and their kids are rotten little animals who take that and run with it when there are no restrictions on their behavior. So I'm kind of in the mind for this is another one of those situations where, hey, this is why we can't have nice things. You're not taking care of your kids and doing the responsible parenting thing. It's not on teachers to have to police the bullying and the the terrible social interactions that are happening online. They just need to run a, a classroom. So I guess what we need to do is just say kids can't have it. If kids can't use it responsibly, kids can't have it. And I think like up to junior high, that is exactly the window where like, nah, kids should still not be using this stuff unsupervised. I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Ghost Starscream. Uh, first to sixth grade shouldn't even have a phone to begin with. 13 should be the bare minimum as long as they understand the good and bad of using one. I believe in a staged rollout. I I, am having great early experiences with Lex, giving her little gadgets that she needs to take care of and building her up. She has a phone on her wrist that has apps and cameras and she's not impressed by it anymore. She's had a a data-connected, LTE-enabled smartwatch for over two years now. Over two years? Yeah, I think over two years now. And she's not, it's not cool to her anymore. It is exactly what it is. It's a thing that I can use to call my parents or my grandmother. Um, There was one other kid who had one and they would send little messages to each other. We did enable that for a little while, but now the kids just don't bother with it. It's not novel anymore. It's not neat. And I I know that that will change when she gets into junior high and more of her peers and her classmates are are getting their first phones. But Lex has had so much more experience with data-connected communications devices not being that fun. (laughs) So I'm hoping that that's at least planted the seed that like there's a practicality to this and there's a reason why we want you to have this and you can be empowered if something is happening and you don't feel safe. You have a way to contact us. That's what this thing is for. But we started having those conversations with our daughter at six. (laughs) I don't feel, you know, the kids that are out there like being animals with each other in seventh grade 
had parents that were like, okay, here's a reasonable way to introduce you to these types of conversations. I think they went like, okay, well, all the kids are getting their iPhones, so we'll give our kid an iPhone now. Don't do bad things with it. Okay, bye. <laughs> and then immediately the kids go and do bad things with it. I feel like that's probably the bigger problem. Let me take a drink of water and we can get into uh, some of these. Uh, Dave Burns, limiting device usage in school. If these devices are engineered to be addictive and everything with screens is addictive, now we can't just personal responsibility our way out of keeping kids on task and institutions need good but not perfect guidelines and legislation. Also, time is a luxury all parents have and saying parents should parent better is really effing condescending. I am a part of the parents need to do a better job of parenting conversation, and I'm trying to lead by example, but man, let me tell you, Marie and I have had some super toxic interactions with other parents based on the color of our text messages. So I kind of feel after a point, there is a part of this conversation where I get really effing condescending. So I'll point out, hey, you know, this is an aspect of bullying and ostracizing and, like, you know, keeping people out of conversations. Well, I don't see what the problem is. I don't have any problems with my iPhone. Yeah, because you're causing the problems. <laughs> you're the bully. You don't get to decide for someone being bullied if they're being bullied. <laughs> like, oh, but, you know, we used to haze kids all the time and it was just good-natured fun. <laughs> you don't get to decide if that kid was suffering you don't get to decide for them that it was just good-natured fun. And I can bring up this example where I have the text messages of you complaining to my wife about the phone she owns. That's not okay. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> uh. Uh, from Pakistan, but one, it's the parents that are at fault. Android and iOS have have some child control features. Surely it's the parents that aren't using them. And I, uh, you know, I, I agree with that. I, a part of this is also the consumer education aspect of all of this. We're expecting parents to teach their kids to better use this stuff when they're not literate in using this stuff better. So it, it, it's a multifaceted problem, but we get to a point where it's, hey, kids are getting hurt, bullying is happening, this is distracting from classroom time, it's impacting our ability to raise academically successful kids. Sure, there are specific pain points. Uh, parents need to parent better, and there need to be better parental control tools, and this needs to happen, and that needs to happen. But at some point, you also just got to say, you can't bring them to school anymore. This is why we can't have nice things. And when parents complain, you say, work together with other parents. Go to the PTA. Talk to these other educators. Be involved in the process. But until there is a better education, understanding, and awareness of what is expected of you in a 21st century economy using these tools, you can't bring them to school. They are a distraction, and they are harming um, educational opportunities. And that, to me, I don't feel is unreasonable. I, unfortunately, I think we've gotten to a point where we probably do need to take a harder line on stuff like that. Oh, yeah, Dave Burns. And unfortunately, our public schools seem to be the only mechanism to educate and help kids. 
And, and like, if you're getting to high school and you're having to deal with these types of social issues with technology, it's too late. It's too late. I'm seeing seven-year-olds with Roblox accounts that are engaged in this kind of social ostracizing. Oh, you don't play Roblox? And my daughter will be like, no, I'm really good at Sonic Team Racing, and we like to play Horizon Turbo, and, you know, do you want to play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And they're like, I play Roblox. (laughs) And you're like, you're such a little brat. And then I meet your parents. And I get it. (laughs) Dave Burns, and again, sometimes is the absolute most critical word in your sentence where I'm with you and then I'm also like real anxious about how that could play out. Dave Burns says, agree with the hardline approach sometimes. And knowing where to draw that line is incredibly difficult. But I think we're getting there. I think we are really close to saying, nah, nah, nah. Um, Man, we got just a few more tech stories. I I really packed this news block. There was a lot going on that I also cut. But a lot of it was even heavier, like, political stuff. Um, Just a quick uh, report from Reuters. Reddit signs content licensing deal with AI company ahead of IPO, Bloomberg reports. Okay, Reuters is reporting that uh, Reddit, a a social media site that I have almost completely abandoned uh, because of their heavy-handed rules about API usage. And one of the things that they were really critical of were all of the bots and AI companies that were scraping their user data and exhausting their APIs, right? Like, oh, it's just all this extra traffic. I'm sure people already know the answer to this. How much money do you think Reddit got from one company for a yearly AI corporation to scrape all of the Reddit data? I said that really clumsily, but write in the comments, how much money do you think Reddit sold all of their data to for a year of letting an AI company train AI models on Reddit data? Now, I want to remind people, Back in 2021, where we started talking about a Reddit IPO, this company was valued at around $10 billion from outside assessors. So even in that window, 5 to $10 billion potential valuation for a future IPO, how much money do you think Reddit is going to make for giving all of their data away? And anyone put a number out there. I'm, I'm really curious to see... If anyone has a guess, how, how much money would be worth it for you to give away your most important product the, or your, I guess, the, your most important fuel for generating some kind of, some kind of income? <laughs> Bionic Scoop. Uh, two souls, a firstborn child, and $3 billion. Uh, Ghost Starscream, I think, is saying one b- 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 like one billion, maybe a billion. Okay. And uh, Dave Burns is making a joke about like alt right and neo Nazis on Reddit. Uh, that's not answering the qu- the question, Dave. The question was like how much money. Well, I'll tell you how much money. Reddit is selling all of their data to one AI company who is yet unnamed, and they're going to make the tidy sum of $60 million. That's how much all of the data on Reddit is worth. 60 
million dollars for a company to go in there, run roughshod over all of the archives and posts and communities, acquire all of the data from all of the places on Reddit. And for a year of that access, which I think is going to be plenty of time to train some language learning models. Like, I don't see this being like, we're going to pay Reddit every year to keep training on this data. $60 million. That's it. That is not a lot. (laughs) That is a very paltry sum for a company that has been valued at potentially around $10 billion. I don't know. What are, does anyone have any strong feelings? I I think this Reddit IPO is probably going to play out this year. I have very low expectations on their public move generating a lot of business interest. If 60 million is all they could get for the entire trove of data, because most of Reddit is garbage, but there are these incredible pocket communities where you, you know, I, the only interactions I have with Reddit are when I do a search for an, an obscure problem and it's not on any other message boards And of course, Google search is garbage now. And even Bing is terrible with this like AI conversational, well, you said to look for this, but not with this term. So I found the term you didn't want me to search for. And all of your results are focused on the term you didn't want. And Bing is useless now. Like I can't use it for anything. Um, Reddit was the place where I would still occasionally find some meaningful piece of information from a conversation that was archived like three years ago. Apparently, the value of all of that information on Reddit is $60 million. They burned so much goodwill, they shuttered all of those wonderful apps, they charged outrageous sums to developers for API access, and then rolled over and gave one company complete and total access to everything on Reddit for $60 million. <laughs> Dave, that's hilarious. Um, well, first, Aditya Anil, the data on Reddit is priceless. If anything, that $60 million is undervalued. Massively undervalued. Yup. Um, Dave Burns, Reddit and Spez especially is super duper good at doing the business. He's doing business. Uh, he's making money because this is great because it's also going to work out on both sides for them. Like, look, we made this one deal with this one content deal with this one company. We got $60 million and you can like, oh, look, there are ways to generate income on this data. And then at the other side, they'll be like, oh, we only got $60 million off of this one data. I guess we better lay people off. Oh, wait, almost everyone is like a volunteer. <laughs> It's so stupid. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know what the Vegas odds are. If you can speculate, or I don't know, can you uh, can you short an IPO? <laughs> I'm really curious. Like, if I have like a thousand dollars just sitting in an account, can can I short Reddit before Reddit really exists on the stock market? Uh, don't do anything that I ever say on this podcast with any inkling of it being investment advice, because I don't play the stocks game. Uh, another quick story from Tech Radar Pro, just something to keep an eye on. Uh, the headline is not helpful. Anywhere there's a camera, now there's a risk. Billions of users at risk of peeping toms. Scientists devise incredibly simple eavesdropping system costing only a few hundred dollars. I've got the link to this. I want you to read through it. The long and short of it is 
uh, we do a good job of trying to protect the actual data that goes from a camera to a computer. So the zeros and ones can be better protected. Obviously, there are ways you can compromise an operating system and get access to a laptop's camera, for example. But when we talk about camera and cybersecurity, we're often just thinking about literally the data that the computer can store coming from the camera. Turns out, the rest of the camera's electronics, not that secure. So literally, like, information from the lens and sensor can be intercepted. Because none of that is a hardened electronic uh, protection uh, security setup. So read through this. If, if you're <laughs> security conscious, like, I, I use this really fancy camera as a web camera. But I also have a really fancy camera that I can put a lens cap on. <laughs> like, things like that might be a, a better, uh, a, a good practice to get into moving forward. Because we can apparently compromise the electronics of the camera before it's sending data as zeros and ones to the actual computer. And again, a tech radar, Wayne Williams wrote that up. Uh, yeah, it's getting pretty, uh, pretty ugly. And then lastly, just another one to keep an eye on because I'm really bullish on Windows uh, laptops this year. Uh, this is from XDA written up by Mustafa Wael. Uh, Qualcomm's exclusivity deal is about to end with some big implications for Windows on ARM. Qualcomm has been the sole chip provider for Windows on ARM solutions, and that looks like that's going to be expiring soon. And other companies are really anxious to jump into the mix. We know MediaTek was talking about their interest in making PC chips, and they've been making uh, Chromebook, really, really good Chromebook chips for low-cost Chromebooks. And then also uh, AMD could be making a play with their experience in designing chiplet-based CPUs and APUs for other systems like portable consoles. That could be opening up also. So when I say, like, I am still obviously reviewing a ton of phones and stuff, but this year I really want to get just a bit more of a foundation on my channel for mini PCs and for laptops. It's because I feel like over 2024 and through 2025 we could see a whole flurry of different price solutions at different options. And when we have competition with ARM solutions in Windows land and in Linux land and in Android land, that I think really helps open up those different options. Like I'm not going to buy a Windows on ARM laptop that I can't replace the SSD. I have a Windows on ARM tablet. And if I want, I can replace the SSD. That should just be a thing I always have access to. So, um, uh, or, or silly things too, like um, I've got this Vivo X100 Pro. The MediaTek in this X100 Pro benchmarks above the performance of a 12th Gen i7 U-series Intel CPU. And we can scoff and say, oh, but Intel CPUs are the worstest and they suck. That is still a remarkably powerful chip to put into a portable computing platform. And this is outperforming, in benchmarks, is outperforming that 12th gen Intel on a passively cooled phone. So it's delivering a similar tier of performance at like one-seventh the battery draw. So if I could just take the chip out of this phone, and obviously I'd need to rejigger a few things and put active cooling on it, 
but this chip should be ready to go directly into a Windows solution and give me two generation old premium tier Intel performance at a fraction of the battery draw. <laughs> like that, that should be like a thing that we have access to. We should have that as a competitive choice in this in this market in this landscape. So. Um, while we get here and start wrapping stuff up, I did skip over one story just talking about, uh, this is also another Bloomberg report, um, from Mark Gurman. I, I have done a terrible job of crediting when people have shared stories on the Some Gadget Guy Discord. We run our own little private Discord. It's like my little safe space just to hang out with a couple nerds. Um, and, and when people share articles, there is like a, a Discord channel just for articles that might go to the, the podcast. I think Dave shared this one. Dave, please correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong on that. Um, oh, and Grounded Tech. I would love a laptop with a super-powered Dimensity 9300. All you got to do is put active cooling on it. And I think we're ready. It, it could be a monster Chromebook chip. Just, it's ready. You could even disable a whole bunch of things like the camera ISP because you don't need it. <laughs> so, uh, Dave Burns, you didn't share this one? I thought you shared a, a link to Mastodon from someone talking about this report and linked it on Mastodon. Anyway, I, I might have it wrong. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe Paul shared it. But um, I feel like this is one of those we created the problem that now we're reporting on and getting to profit from. Um, let's see why some of Apple's biggest fans are returning their vision pros written up by Mark German. The Apple vision pro has now been available for two weeks and some of Apple's most dedicated customers are returning to the the device to get back their $3,500. Also Apple's longest serving product designer retires and the company's making headway on its generative AI push. See, like we've already like combined a bunch of like, topical Apple stories. How many, how many articles have people been seeing like, oh, the next version of the Vision Pro? Like, the Vision Pro's been out for a week. <laughs> the return period is still valid from the first wave. I guess not today now. I think the return period just closed for the first wave of pre-orders. But this is what I mean. Like, Apple gets this incredible preferential treatment from the media. Of course, a slew of people were going to go out and pick this thing up just for the cred of having used Apple Vision Pro first. We have an entire media industry that depends on, first, I was first, I got it before you, the traffic that's coming to my channel is first traffic, so that makes me more money because I was first, and it's, there is no contribution to the discussion beyond first, and that's it. It's like a dog yelling, squirrel! And that's, that's all we apparently have the capacity to understand. Apple's most dedicated customers have actively been not involved in the VR conversation because there has been no Apple VR headset to speak of. They're the worst metric for judging the success of a VR platform because Apple hasn't given them access to a VR platform. They were not earnest participants in VR and mixed reality before Apple got involved. So this is what's so frustrating is like, I don't ever really want to defend Apple. They're a multi-trillion dollar corporation. They don't, they don't need help. Their marketing is already infested in so many users' brains. But of course, 
there was going to be a wave of returns in that first week because those people were not earnestly interested in VR. They only wanted the tasty SEO clickbait of first trending topic SEO YouTube monetization. That's it. They're not going to contribute to this conversation. They're not developers looking to build the next generation of products and apps and services. They are a distraction from the conversation surrounding mixed reality. I have very strong feelings about Apple deliriously over-promising and under-delivering on a $3,500 consumer-facing headset. I also have pretty strong feelings that Apple has made a really sexy and interesting developer kit. That if you want to build future apps and services, a Vision Pro looks like an interesting platform to do that work on. But it is not a consumer-facing product. A Quest is a consumer-facing product with things to do on the Quest. And the capabilities of the Quest seem even more exciting now that we've seen what Apple has, a- has been able to do on a headset that costs seven times more. So I, I-, I have to preface um, my opinions on Quest and Vision Pro are heavily influenced by a handful of the VR enthusiasts that I like to follow. I'm not inclined to give Facebook any of my money or any of my data. I'm just not interested. If I were forced at gunpoint to buy a headset today, purely on the political reasons of how each of these companies do business, I would probably buy an HTC. An HTC is more expensive than a Quest, and the Quest does a few things much better than the HTC, But I also know HTC to date, and someone please correct me if we've discovered uh, otherwise, the reason an HTC headset is more expensive than a Quest is because HTC isn't directly profiting off of user data and they don't have the same entrenched store for after, uh, after purchase software licensing. So you pay more upfront for that headset but then that headset should be more contained to the user and not selling off data and not requiring, you know, a meta account to buy specific apps built specifically for that headset. I'm inclined to support that business model more than giving Facebook my money. I I said at the beginning of this podcast, and I wrote up an editorial saying Zuckerberg was right to wade into this fight. Because you've got so many of these reporters, big air quotes on reporters and journalists, who will just candidly say offhand, well, obviously the Vision Pro is better, but they can't quantify how. Setting a floating kitchen timer over a boiling pot of noodles is neat, but that doesn't give us the future of what we can do with mixed reality. Whereas Quest has got a whole slew of developers, they've got 20 million units out in the environment right now. Their sales are actually ticking up with the release of Vision Pro. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised. Um, I'm kind of happy to see that at least as one competitive um, outlook. But all of the people that are only interested in mixed reality now have no idea what a Quest can do because they've listened to Apple marketing. And Apple marketing makes you less educated 
on what technology really looks like. It's kind of like, you know, back in the uh, classic Comedy Central Daily Show days, you would read these studies like people who watch Fox News were less educated about politics than people who didn't watch any news at all. (laughs) They were actively misinformed by what's going on. So if all you do is consume, if you're a diehard Apple fan and all you do is consume Apple marketing, you know less about what's going on with mixed reality than if you had watched no marketing or advertising at all. And this is one of the main points that I like to bring up. We, we, we did this in another podcast and I just put it out there like off the top of your head, don't pull up another browser tab, but tell me everything you know about HTC's current headset. There's a vacuum of conversation around the current state of mixed reality and people don't know what's going on, what, what these products are capable of doing and why we've made some of the design decisions that we have. So I would like to take this as just a small opportunity to shout out, um, I really like the DLC podcast. Um, that's Jeff Kanata, uh, Christian Spicer. <laughs> um, they do a, a weekly show about video games. And Jeff Kanata is a diehard VR enthusiast. I am not at his level, but I have been passionately interested in face computing for at least 12 years now. I've always been tangentially interested in putting a big old bucket on my head to play arcade games. And I loved going to those arcades that had those really rudimentary VR experiences. But especially over the last 12 years, for me, I believe the next important step is getting back into sleeker, smaller frames and heads-up displays. I don't think the future is fully realized RoboCop Terminator augmented reality. It's just, can I get more relevant information up at eye level when I need it. Jeff Kanata is way more interested in the fully immersive capabilities of virtual reality headsets transporting you into other worlds. So on the DLC podcast, they got a Vision Pro that is mandatory for their type of conversation to talk about these devices. And I feel like Jeff Kanata had some really insightful pros and cons on what the Vision Pro really is what it might be capable of, and some of the huge glaring omissions that are, are currently falling because Apple is trying to do something different than what other mixed reality headsets are doing. Often that's good for Apple because you train a whole slew of Apple enthusiasts to only do things the Apple way, and they ignore the benefits of how another company might do another solution. With the Vision Pro, I feel like if you're coming at this from a VR enthusiast perspective, there's not a lot there. There's not a lot to really be excited about. There's a lot that walks you back from the capabilities and functionality that you've taken for granted on other VR and and mixed reality headsets. And to me, this kind of plays out similarly to the first iPhone. When the first iPhone came out, I didn't like it. I was upset. I had these little Windows Mobile PDA phones Clumsy, messy user interfaces, resistive touch screens. They weren't great user experiences, but they were so much more functional and capable and powerful than that iPhone. 
I could install apps before Apple let us install apps. I had 3G radios and connections while Apple was using a 2G radio. They were less expensive and had higher resolution displays, slider keyboards. I had all of these capabilities. And the iPhone took all of that functionality away to make a simpler, more streamlined device. And that proved successful for consumers that were kind of getting out of the era of sidekicks, right? Feature phones and communicator phones, stuff like that. That was at a formative time where consumers didn't want smartphones. When I had PDAs, people would make fun of me. Why do you always need to have a computer with you? Don't you ever want to unplug? What's the deal? Oh, you want to check your email whenever you want. That was like a common pushback against this idea of having a powerful pocket computer. It was a geeky, nerdy thing to have. It wasn't cool. And Apple made it cool. And that's fine. But Apple made it cool by removing so much of the functionality that I loved having in my pocket. And it took Android years to replace that. I did not jump on the first generation of Android hardware because it was so much less capable than my little Windows mobile devices. I had an HTC Touch Slider Pro with the QWERTY keyboard and that HTC Dream, not a good, not a good replacement. No, I did not like that first Android G1. That was a terrible phone <laughs> compared to what I could do on Windows mobile in the day. It was prettier, but it wasn't more functional. It was less functional. Muppinish, I demand more slider phones. Me too. It's also one of the reasons why I liked the Duo. Is It wasn't a slider, but you had one whole screen dedicated to content and this huge keyboard underneath. It was so great. So um, I'm, I'm rambling here. Apologies. I know we kind of wanted to talk about some other stuff. And we've got that Xiaomi 14 teaser we should probably watch just as we close this all out. But like the conversation on VR is not the same as the conversation on phones. There was a tipping point in feature phones that got people interested in having an iPod, a web browser, and the ability to check your email in one device. Vision Pro isn't bringing us that same critical uh, disruption that the iPhone brought us. It is not a like conversation. And it is not shocking that people are returning their Vision Pros because they weren't earnestly interested in VR or MR before. Now, we have an opportunity for developers to really lead the discussion on future location-aware applications and incorporating those into more streamlined devices that consumers can more comfortably wear. But that's not... That, that just further verifies the Vision Pro is not a consumer-facing product. It is a developer kit, just like HoloLens was a developer kit. You can go and buy it if you just want to buy it and play with some of the stuff that other developers make, but that's not the point of a developer kit. And now I feel we can have a more earnest, a more honest conversation about this as a platform and what we can do moving forward. The next Vision Pro will get rid of so many of these gimmicks, and it will probably be a more traditional mixed reality headset, but this is silly for us to be like, Oh, it's the most amazing thing in VR. And oh, now people are returning it. Why are they returning it? Like, because we've created a media landscape that exists solely to occupy first. And it doesn't bring 
nuanced conversation or any factual reporting. It's only confirmation bias. If you're an Apple fan, you're going to love it. And if you're not an Apple fan, you're going to give us hate traffic when we say that Apple is the best. It's all rage bait at this point. And it, and every every company that is making a solution for a product that competes against Apple, you are going to die in this media landscape if you don't lead the conversation about your products. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg. I love that he went out there and said, no, we think this is the best. We're excited about what we're making and we think we've made the best consumer solution for people to really use. Can't tell me anything about an HTC headset. HTC isn't out there. HTC isn't leading the conversation on their products. HTC is invisible right now. It happened to LG smartphones. No marketing, no consistent relationship with consumers, no conversation. Launch the phone, wait for it to hit fire sale, sell out that stock. Hopefully next year, maybe next year they'll get better. Oh wait, LG stopped making smartphones. If anyone has some kind of communication with HTC, let them know, hey, you missed out. You could have led this conversation. Vision Pro came out and you put your headset and it wasn't on sale, but you sold it with some weird bundle. So it was like reduced costs on software and a pro plan and all this other stuff. And you could have set the stage for your part of the conversation against the Vision Pro. But Mark Zuckerberg went out there and made some noise, and now anyone else doing that is just going to be like, oh, well, HTC just wants to do the same thing too. No vision. No executive vision. No leadership from these CEOs. All these people, they're going to get millions of dollars with their golden parachutes and driving their companies into the ground because they won't do the -the on-the-ground legwork. They won't spend the money to really build up actual grassroots. They all want to astroturf on the cheap, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. You're going to keep losing. So, um, (laughs) Grounded Tech, uh, who needs facts or nuance when you can just go and buy an Apple Vision Pro? (laughs) Uh, That's so funny. The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from Me Audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at Me Audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. 
we have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at MeAudio for hooking up the promo code now. Let's get on with the show. Um, Reaper Black. Hello, Juan. Did you read Oppo and Vivo are quitting the foldable market? I am very nervous about this. I am not surprised that Oppo would take a look at the vast majority of sales going to flip style devices and say, yeah, I don't think we need to keep making mini folding tablets. I mean, I want to say it's something ridiculous like, the Galaxy Z Flip by itself is responsible for like, someone please check my numbers on this. I want to say that one phone line by itself is responsible for like 60% of all folding screen sales. And you're like, yeah, the, the, the flip style makes a lot of sense to consumers. They understand it immediately better. And you don't have all the teething pains of trying to convince someone that they should also have a tablet. Right? You have a double-thick phone that turns into a tablet. Well, what can I do on tablets? And then you go on YouTube, and it's a bunch of people with like 10 million subscribers going, tablets are useless except for the iPad. They're just s- solutions in search of problems. And then the consumer goes, I guess I don't need a tablet. I'll get the phone that flips like a little clamshell instead. So I would not be surprised if Oppo decides, hey, yeah, we don't need to keep spending money on this folding tablet idea and they walk away. I would be sad because the, the, the open has turned into one of the nicest surprises over the last year. Um, I just keep coming back to the open as a, just a great computer in my pocket. Uh, and it, and it tickles my brain in some of the same ways that I absolutely loved my surface duo, but I can't fault the company for, not wanting to keep, you know, like bashing their head against the wall if folding tablets aren't selling. So we haven't done a good job of educating consumers. And and these companies are responsible for that. They are responsible for the messaging that they put out and the relationship they have with their customers. But at the same time, we have a tech press that isn't helping either. So there's like, I guess you buy a Galaxy Z Fold because Samsung makes the most money in search for our video channel. So we'll only talk about that one with any regularity or consistency. And it's a shame. Um, I think there are some really good ideas that we still need to explore at the same time. For as much as I love my open, I just held up these other glasses. Like a lot of why I like the open overlaps with why I love these little portable displays, these little face displays. There's a time I I'm running around and I'm using the open. And most of the time it's a phone. And then there are some times I sit down and I really want to open that thing up and dig into some content. It's kind of the same argument. Most of the time I'm running around with my OnePlus 12, it's just a slate phone. And then when I really want to sit down, I can plug in some glasses and have a bigger screen to enjoy content. They're not exactly the same. I don't use them exactly the same way, 
but there's a similar idea. And I'm going to show, like, I've got a video that's going to be coming out soon. Do I have it over here? Yeah, I've got it. So this is the, I'm showing you a big white box. This doesn't help the conversation. But this is the portable dual monitor U-Perfect setup. So it looks like a really, really chunky laptop, but it opens up to two displays. And then you plug that into your laptop and you have a triple monitor setup. And I'm going to show this off and I'm going to have a whole bunch of techies on my channel go, oh, that's so cool. And you're like, yeah, but it's like you have to carry two and a half laptops to have a laptop with a triple monitor display. Or you could plug these glasses into a, a laptop and simulate an ultra wide monitor floating above your laptop screen. And trying to get someone to consider this is like, oh, but it's not ready. And those are too expensive. And these glasses, they're like $400. And who would buy that for a portable monitor? And then I show off these dual display monitors. And it's like, oh, that's a great idea. I need to have that for my laptop because I like to get the work done. And you're like, but you want to carry all of that? <laughs> I like them. They're cool. I'm not going to pack that up on the regular, though. That, to me, is not... Again, like I was saying about Windows laptops, Windows laptops are good portable desktops. They're not good portable computers, like off when they're not plugged in. And to me, that's kind of a similar, like, I'm going to travel for work and I'm going to set up in a hotel room and I'm going to, you know, set up a computer and a multi-monitor setup for my computer. And then that's not going to leave. And it's a lot of time to set it up and it's a lot of time to tear it down. But when I'm on the go, I plug in these glasses and I have a super ultra wide monitor ready to go and I can look all around and pin that window up in space above my laptop. It is so much more functional and so much more accessible and so much more practical. And we're kind of in the same cost. If not, the face displays are often now cheaper than our fancy exotic portable monitors. So anyway, um, it's, uh, to me, that kind of stuff is sort of silly. I I'd like us to kind of close out here just talking about new phones and rumors and, and stuff like that. Uh, I, I was, uh, oh, let me mute this because I think it's got music on it too. Um, first of all, the very first person in the video on this, Xiaomi put out another teaser for the uh, Xiaomi 14 series. And I guess that means we're going to be seeing the Ultra released internationally soon. Um, I'm very anxious to see how Xiaomi handles that reveal. I don't have one. I don't know if I'll need to buy one. I probably won't buy one because my Xiaomi 13 Ultra is still going strong as one of the best B-roll cameras I've ever used on my channel. And I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to see um, what the pricing is. But uh, let me screen share this here while we kind of talk about it. When, when I first saw this, I thought the old man in the first example was AI generated. He doesn't look like a real person the way that they've shot this. Um, but then the other people that come in, like there's a little kid and it take, they take photos of the little kid. And I think it's kind of interesting when you see the photos that they're snapping, there's a lot of motion blur. They're not razor sharp images. Same thing. There's like a woman crying with like a hard one directional light on the side of her face. And I just thought it was kind of an interesting way to showcase the, the Xiaomi 14 is like a new Leica camera. 
because like one of the shot is like blurry and slightly out of focus on the little kid's face. And the, one of the shots of the woman is like kind of motion blurred as she's like kind of dipping her head. But we get into the end of the commercial and the important part is that uh, we are getting one functional hardware difference over the 13 um, Ultra where the optics now have a variable aperture, not a two-stage aperture. So it's a more traditional um, aperture. Oh, whoops. Come on. Turn off screen share. It's a more um, traditional aperture blade assembly. So what happens on the... uh, on the Xiaomi 13 is there's a two stage aperture, but really just there's a, a little two piece plastic uh, ring that pops out and cinches down the aperture on the main camera for the 14. It looks like regular aperture blades, the same thing that we would see on the inside of a fancy mirrorless camera lens. And it should give us more control, more variability over how large or how small that aperture is. So that has pros and cons. Um, The pro, obviously, is there are times where I want to stop down, but I don't want to stop down to f4. So this goes from f1.8 to f4. Equivalence, that's kind of like having f5 on a full-frame camera down to like, um, like f8, I think. I might might be doing the, the math wrong there. No, no, sorry. On micro four thirds, it's like going from f, like f two point five to f eight, because the crop factor is two. I'm not doing the math right here. Anyway, um, it stops down more than I would want it to. <laughs> Short story, incredibly long. There are times where I don't want to go all the way down to f four. I'd like to go from f one point eight to f two point eight. On the phone. I think that's actually better for what I need, but I don't have that variability. The thing that makes me a little anxious though is when we look at these aperture blades on the teaser, what can happen? So that's not really a good, perfectly circular aperture. We've got these, it's not. What, I, I think we can almost count these. It's one, two, three, four, five, six. I think it's a six-bladed aperture. So you can end up, um, if they're not careful about how you design the curvature on those aperture blades, you can end up with hexagonal look to your bokeh. Some people will point to that and say, oh, that's this classic lens, and you could see it in this mo- movie, and then there are twinkly lights behind the main character, and you get this kind of like hexagonal look to the bokeh and that's like a classic hallmark of this blah 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 the thing that the 13 does is when you stop it down it's still a perfect circle so your bokeh balls when you stop down to this f4 those bokeh balls look like perfect circles still the aperture is a perfect circle so again to me this is one of the reasons why like even when we get better sensors the practical application of the optical look of a full-frame sensor and a variable aperture isn't going to change significantly. What I might get, maybe I get a stop better performance. So low-light photography gets a bump. I can use a slower shutter. I mean, I can use a faster shutter at a lower ISO, right? So some of those things are definitely going to be improvements, but the core functionality, the only other thing that might pull me into a Xiaomi 14 Ultra is whether or not we get better close focusing from the telephoto sensors. 
because I love the macro capabilities on the Vivo X100 Pro. I don't, that's one of the only things I don't have on the Xiaomi 13 Ultra. So, um, to me, this is kind of a, it's kind of an awkward pacing because the Xiaomi 14 has already been revealed in China. We know a lot about that phone already. We're seeing some really interesting iterative improvements on the 14 Ultra, and we still need to get full, uh, the, the, the full, um, uh, uh, press event to tell us like what the, what are the, uh, the availability going to look like? When is the phone actually going to ship? How much is the phone going to cost? All of that stuff still needs to kind of come out. And it doesn't seem like the 14 pro is going to get an international release. So I think Xiaomi is testing the waters. Can we sell our most expensive phone out in Europe? Can we sell our most expensive phone maybe in India is instead of, well, we'll keep our most expensive phone just for China. And I wonder if this is going to spur on Vivo to maybe do something similar. Like if we get a Vivo Pro Plus, is that going to make it outside of China? Will that eventually be sold in the EU? So again, it was just a cute little teaser, but I felt it was like a really odd way to demonstrate a feature ahead of the actual phone's release. Um, and, and, and it brings some concerns. I Again, Ultimately, I think that is a cool upgrade. I think that is a cool feature improvement. Huawei has already been showing us that that kind of stuff can work really well. I'm anxious to see how it plays out on a one-inch type sensor and whether or not that contributes to my content creation capabilities more than their two-stage aperture can. But it's um, it's a lot of unknowns for a phone that I don't think is going to be as big of an upgrade. Like, Going from the Mi 11 Ultra to the Xiaomi 12S Ultra. The Xiaomi 12S Ultra is still such a monster camera phone performer that I still keep it on my desk and regularly use it. It's that good. These these camera sensors and optics and lenses are fantastic. And especially if you're used to North American phones, like the Xiaomi 12S Ultra in all aspects of the phone, is a phone that can still handily go head-to-head with my Pixel 8 Pro and win a lot of the comparison points against my Pixel 8 Pro. I was not expecting the move from 12S... I was not expecting the move from the 12 Ultra to the 13 Ultra to be as big a deal as it was, and then it turned out like this was a huge upgrade, and I'm really glad I was getting to play with both. I am skeptical that the upgrade from the 13 Ultra to the 14 Ultra will feel as substantial, but I'm hoping I'm wrong. (laughs) I'm hoping Xiaomi comes out and says, oh, by the way, you can do this and that, and now here's this amazing capability. And then I go, shoot, I guess I'm going to buy one less laptop this year because I absolutely need to buy a Xiaomi 14 Ultra. All right. Sorry. I, I've been way behind on the comments. I saw a whole lot of chatter and I do kind of want to track back. But Reaper Black, thank you for kind of getting me back on track talking about um, uh, Vivo and foldables and stuff like that. Um, let's see. Reaper Black is saying, also, Realme has exited the German market and confirmed to exit the UK market. It's a bad week for BBK. So BBK technically I don't think exists anymore. 
I think the two main umbrella companies, Oppo and Vivo, have split and are now, again, there might be still some cross-pollination, but they were under one umbrella, BBK, but now I believe they are separate entities. But I thought the Vivo was still available or was going to be available in Germany. I know Oppo worked out all of their licensing issues with Nokia and that 5G radio, but maybe that was what precipitated the split so that they were now properly firewalled and distinct entities. I Actually, I need to read up on that. Um, and Jimmy Fire Dragon also saying the same thing, that Realme is thinking about quitting the UK market. That one stings a little, but when you're in the UK and you're in the EU, you have so many more options for good competitive mid-rangers that losing Realme sucks, but like you could also pick up uh, Poco. <laughs> you know, like we don't have that here. If we lose a OnePlus 12R, there is nothing to fill that gap. The OnePlus 12R is one of the most brutally competitive devices on the market in North America. It is a stunning example of price to performance. And if OnePlus decides to pull the plug, we've got nothing <laughs> that it's like a OnePlus 12R. So I, I definitely feel like if you were a fan of Realme and you liked where they were going with their products, I mean, I recently talked about one of the Realmes. I don't even think I can find it. I have a second shelf of more recent phones and it's way too full for me to dig through and find the real me that I just covered. That Note Plus was was solid. But you can at least take some solace that if you lose real me, there are some other options for you. I we, we don't have anything like that here right now. We have no other good flagship killer brands really stepping up. Um, Ghost Scream, hot take. The flip smartphone is only for nostalgia purposes. It'll go along the wayside when the upcoming generations have no idea what a flip phone was like. I think it's even going to be sooner than that. I think once you kind of get over the novelty, I, I bet you see, we're talking longer term. We've got to look at data over like four to five years. People who, who kind of buy in at the peak of the flip phone, likely going back to slate phones. People like, oh, yeah, I had this phone. It's a really cool conversation piece. People are interested when I flip it open. It's a, you know, it, that's fun and it's novel and it's just a, a, a cute gimmick. I will be very interested to see how many people pick up flip phones and stick with the flip form factor. Because I think what's going to kill the flip form factor are people getting used to this, playing with it, Kind of saying like, oh, but it's also way more fragile or the screen broke really easily or it's scratched. You know, you can't protect a flip phone like you can a, a more traditional slate phone. And how many of those people go back to a slate phone? Can we keep increasing the number of first-time adopters of flip phones faster than people who return from flip phones to more traditional slate phones? And that, I think, will be the interesting idea to watch over the next couple of years. Uh, from Muppinish, my initial thought when I tried my X-Real glasses was, damn, I would love a QWERTY keyboard on my phone for this too. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, like being able to flick out, like have a slider keyboard kind of type. You've got like your displays and stuff going on. But now having used these heads, uh, these heads up displays, having used these face displays with like 
a laptop, a tablet, a smartphone, being able to like quickly kind of move back and forth between all of these. My little Bluetooth keyboard has been getting a lot more action lately <laughs> where it's like, I don't want to have to like take my eyes off the screen to kind of like look down at a keyboard or hold a phone. And then I've got like my little flip out Bluetooth keyboard and I'm just plugged in, got a mouse doing all this kind of stuff. I love it. It's, it's really great. Um, Let's see. Uh, Al Sabakli, when is that Ultra coming out anyway? I don't know when the announcement is. Is the Xiaomi event on the 25th? I can look that up. Uh, Xiaomi 14 series keynote. Um, February 26th. So it looks like it's going to be a part of the MWC event. Um, but the Xiaomi 14 and 14 Pro were released back in December. So we know what the 14 can do. <laughs> but it looks like the Ultra is going to be the big part of their their uh, their MWC coverage and their keynote there too. Um, let's see. Um, from Nation One, are you going to try and get your hands on a Nothing 2A? Have you ever used a Nothing phone? I held the first nothing phone for an hour and that is the only experience i've had with nothing and increasingly i've not seen a whole lot that makes me feel i desperately need to live with one of these phones and cover it and the few parts of these conversations that i feel have crept up that could have been interesting have turned out to not be interesting things like well, we'll partner with this other app developer to give you a messenger that sort of acts like blue bubbles in an iMessage thread. And then that turned out to not be a good idea. So I would like to see what nothing can do beyond some of the surface level or novelty level things. You know, I'm like such a nuts and bolts reviewer. I don't really care about the aesthetic or the back of a phone. I think the back of the OnePlus 12 looks fine. But the reason why I'm interested in the back of the OnePlus 12 is for the cameras and for OnePlus's new antenna assembly. I think that is more interesting to talk about than like what glyphs can do because I'm the kind of guy who wears a smartwatch to filter all of my notifications and alerts and to reply to messages. And I want to get rid of my smartwatch to get a pair of glasses. I want focals by north back so I can have a better streamlined eye level interaction with my data. I want to be using the phone less for things. I don't care about always on displays. I think they're distracting. I don't want to pick up my phone unless I have a reason to pick up my phone. My watch is an okay gatekeeper for that, but I want a better gatekeeper for that. So a lot of what nothing is bringing to the table doesn't really apply to me because it's the kind of things I'm trying to get away from using my phone to do. I think phones are miserably bad at notifications and alerts. And it's part of the reason why we have this kind of toxic relationship with our phone, this you know, crackberry uh, I need to, oh, I just saw a flashing light on my phone. I better stop what I'm doing over here on my ultra-wide monitor and pick up my phone. And everything that we've done to kind of abbreviate that, like I can install software that now like has my OnePlus talk to my monitor and the phone is less distracting, but it's still like constantly 
disrupting what I'm trying to focus on or what else I'm trying to do in my sphere of digital influence. I don't mean to hit nothing on this. It's not their fault. But when I see them talk about their design philosophy and their feature set and what makes them a, a different solution than some of the other sort of mid-rangery options out there, I haven't found anything compelling enough for me to want to live with it. And that's difficult. I mean, unfortunately, it's a channel of one content creator, one reviewer with a particular preference and a particular bias. And that's not fair reviewing, but it needs to be a part of like how I make it through my day. And if the nothing phone isn't doing anything to contribute to how I make it through my day, I'm probably going to end up just giving it a mediocre or a negative review. And I don't think that's fair to the product, but I still should at some point try to experience more what it is that they have accomplished. Cause I think it's interesting trying to launch a new phone at an era where we're all talking about how do we move beyond the phone? Um, there is still an interesting conversation to be had there that I have not contributed to. Um, sorry. Uh, let me get this out of the way. Oh, Bionic Scoop. Yeah, I messed with a heart-shaped iris before. It's odd. I, I did that once in a photography class. So once you know, once you can calculate, like, you know, here's the back the um, back lens assembly on, on a lens, and you know what, like, the aperture is and how to measure that, you can make a physical iris shape and just kind of stick it to the back lens assembly. And then when you take photos, you have a fixed aperture, but your bokeh becomes the little shape that you cut out there. So for me, I did um, stars. I did star-shaped bokeh on a photography project shooting film. And only one shot out of an entire roll of film worked. (laughs) But it was fun to mess with. And you can do that today. In fact, now I think you can order um, uh, inserts that can go on to your back lens assemblies and just kind of force that that bokeh. When you do it on purpose or you do it with purpose, I think it's really cool. Somewhere in a box, I still have the older Canon 50mm f1.8. That's the Plastic Fantastic. And that had a five-bladed aperture um, where you caught these hard pentagonal bokeh balls. Like, it, it, you know, even when you opened it full wide, the blades were, like, flat, like, pointed pentagons. And, uh, you know, you, you couldn't get a soft bokeh ball out of that thing. So that's why I'm a little anxious, like, what we might see from a bladed variable aperture on the Xiaomi 14 is I do like the bokeh quality. Even when you stop down on the Xiaomi 13 Ultra, it still is perfectly circular. It's a kind of a pretty bokeh for a phone. Um, I'm very impressed because we're talking about such tiny little optics and tiny little aperture rings that it still, it does kind of matter to the composition optical quality of what you can shoot from a phone. And it's why I get even more increasingly frustrated with camera guys that complain about phone cameras. Oh, phone camera is going to do anything with a phone. I shoot with Hasselblad, Mamiya, digital back, full micro four medium format. You're like, okay, cool. But you're missing out on some really cool cameras. <laughs> uh, I'm way behind on the comments. Oh, Michael Corcoran. Yeah, if, if the foldable market dies. Gadget Goddess, Shane Craig, Mr. Mobile, they will all be sad if foldables die. 
I, I will too. I, I still think dual display has a, a, a place at the table. There are still times, like I've got the, both of the duos right above my head. Uh, you can kind of see like over this year, right there, right there. There's an Excelsior um, and then there's my uh, composition notebook skinned uh, duo one. There is an interesting idea there, and there is a functionality and a practicality to having more real estate on something that can fold up and fit in your pocket. But I think these companies have done a miserable job of communicating that to consumers. Samsung has actually done the best job of all of these companies in highlighting some practical use case scenarios in their ads, featuring real live humans opening and using these products in ways that kind of make sense, but they're not really driving any more of a conversation beyond that. They've kind of put these things out there as these aspirational halo products, but they haven't put boots on the ground. They haven't put a Samsung employee in a Best Buy to, to host all day. Hey, come and do that. Hey, you're walking by. You're walking over to the Apple section. Do you want to see a real futuristic phone that turns into an iPad? You know, like they're not doing the legwork. They're trying to rest on the laurels of the brand reputation, just telling people this is the future. Well, what can you do with it? And if we're going to be critical of like a $2,000 folding mini tablet phone, I feel like we should be even more critical of a $3,500 mixed reality developer kit headset. But I digress. <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if if a number of these companies say, like, if we put all this money into it, all this R&D, consumers aren't getting on board, maybe we should walk away. It's a failure of their own making. They did not appropriately find the audience, reach out to them, educate them, and get them on board this idea. And maybe a Google will fill that role and say, hey, we at Google have a vested interest in getting Android into more tablets. <clears throat> because we want Android in more tablets, we have made this product that functions as both a phone and a tablet, and this is what you can do with it. And they'll put a billion dollars behind their marketing efforts, and maybe they can lead that conversation. Um, but I don't see anyone else stepping up to really lead that conversation. So you get a bunch of Android reviewers who just keep regurgitating, I mean, yeah, it's great, and you can open it and look, and now you've got this great Android tablet. But tablets are solutions in search of problems, so who would want to buy this? And you're like, that's a great question, reviewer. Who would want to buy it? Why can't you answer that question in a meaningful way to help educate your audience? Because you're not really a reviewer. <laughs> Shane Craig for as spiky and as, as prickly as he can get with some of his snarkiness is trying to educate his audience on pushing these things to their limits. So he has an answer. If you ask a Shane Craig who should buy this, he will very intelligently be able to break down the pros and cons for someone who might want to make that kind of purchasing decision. <laughs> I'm way behind on the chat. And unfortunately I think we're just going to have to start closing this up. <laughs> Um, but Michael Corcoran, if Oppo leaves the foldable market, how would that trickle down to OnePlus? If Oppo walks away from foldables, I think OnePlus walks away from foldables because OnePlus is Oppo. The OnePlus Open is not a unique product. It is a version of an Oppo foldable that has been reskinned for the United States and for North America. 
So if Oppo stops making foldable tablets, I am very confident that OnePlus will also stop making foldable tablets. So um, it is uh, February 19. In seven days, it will be February 26. And that means uh, for next week's show, we're going to have a pajama podcast. But I am very confident we'll be spending some time during our PJ podcast talking about the Xiaomi announcement. And then we'll have to play a fun game. Uh, can we ratchet one into breaking part of his budget to buy a Xiaomi 14 Ultra? <laughs> so that's, I'm not looking forward to next week's show <laughs> to see how hard this is going to hit my pocketbook. If I do eventually need to buy a Xiaomi 14 Ultra, I really, I really don't want to buy a Xiaomi 14 Ultra. But them's the breaks in gadget review land. So, uh, folks, uh, try and stay dry out there. We are in uh, emergency flash flood. I've gotten three alerts on my phones uh, while doing this podcast. We are in emergency flash flood warnings for Southern California. And I know across the country we are facing some incredible weather out there. This is a, a reminder to double check all of your emergency supplies. Make your bug out bag if you've got to, like, maybe evacuate from an area, have all of that ready to go. Um, charge up your batteries and have your solar panels ready in case something is, is affecting your area. Just take care of yourselves so you can keep taking care of others. Uh, I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech News Show. Next week's going to be the Pajama Podcast, closing out the month. We're already done with February. This year is kicking my behind. And uh, we'll, we'll start getting some news out of MWC over the next, uh, over the next week, which is going to be really exciting to see what we do in 2024 when so many of our hot, exciting new phones came out at the end of 2023. So, um, uh, oh, and, and of course, lastly, also make sure you're catching all of the other fun streams that are hitting uh, throughout the week. Uh, as mentioned, Gadget Goddess, uh, she, she does her show on Tuesdays. Uh, we've got Easy Computer Solutions. We've got The Tech Preacher on Wednesdays. Um, TK and I usually stream on Thursdays, but uh, Ike has been back into streaming again. Uh, Ike's Tech Talk. Really, really fun, cool, chill stream. LaShawn on Fridays. El Jefe Reviews. Uh, Nomad Tech Project over the weekends. We've got so many people that are making great, casual, conversational media. And I'm going to put this out there, just one last request. If you have a solution or an option or a recommendation for some kind of town hall style streaming solution, please drop it my way. We are, I'm getting very close to trying a town hall style podcast. And uh, I, I'm thinking if I can get all my ducks in a row, the pajama podcast for March. So the, the last podcast of March, I really want to open it up make it more of a call-in style show, maybe have a guest on to co-host with. I'm going to try to work my butt off <laughs> to get that in place for next month's Pajama Podcast. So stay safe, be well, take care of yourselves. I'll catch you back here next week. I love you all. Recording voiceover, spoken word is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, 
The smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today.